It's really good to be here at Vic Park. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to today for the last three weeks, and it's really good to be back um, to do How to Study the Bible Part 2. Now, if you didn't hear Part 1, there might be some question marks that Part 2 raises up, but you can go on Vic Park's uh, church website, vicparksdachurch.com. Um, in the little toolbar above where the options are, you'll see, you'll find podcast. If you click on that, part one is there. Um, part one wasn't able to be recorded here in the audio system because the audio system was down that day. So it's actually the version I preached at Joondalup. It's the same exact thing. You might just hear different names being mentioned because it's a different church, but it's basically the same content. For those of you who haven't been able to hear part one and maybe feel like you need to after today's sermon. Now, I want to just do a quick recap. Um, let me see if this is on. I want to do a quick, quick recap of where we were last, last time I was here when we looked at part one, and then I want to launch into part two. In the first sermon of this series, How to Study the Bible, I mentioned something really important. I mentioned that throughout this year, my focus is discipleship. I want to equip the church to be able to walk with God without having to depend on a pastor or a preacher or an elder. Now, that doesn't mean we don't work together and that we don't learn from each other. Of course we do. It just means that we don't depend on each other to the degree that if the pastor preaches a sermon that has nothing to do with what's going on in your life, you feel like, oh, no, now I have to wait another week and hopefully the sermon will speak to me. No, you can open this book anytime and find life. You can open this book anywhere and find Jesus. You don't need a pastor to do that for you. And so part of the journey this year, we're starting with the Bible and we're going to look at other elements as well of the spiritual life, is equipping the church to be able to grow with God without having to be dependent on, on a pastor. Now, in the first sermon of the series, though, I didn't actually talk about how to study the Bible, in case you were here and you remember that sermon. I didn't actually talk about how to study the Bible. Instead, we looked at the proper way to approach the Bible. Because it doesn't make any sense for me to give you tips on Bible study if you approach the Bible from an entirely faulty perspective. And so we saw three things. Number one, this was from John chapter 5. We saw that reading the Bible doesn't give life. Jesus gives life. Our study of Scripture must point to Him, or it's meaningless. If your study of Scripture isn't leading you to Jesus, you are becoming very smart, but you're not necessarily experiencing life. The second thing that we noticed is that each of us approach the Bible with prior beliefs that we read into the Bible. And so if we want to find Jesus in Scripture, if we want to derive something meaningful and life-changing, a message that God has for us from Scripture— we must read scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see what he wants us to see. Because if we don't have him guiding us, chances are our biases will just lead us in all kinds of directions. And finally, we saw that faulty models of inspiration, misunderstanding how inspiration works, can actually lead us away from discovering the message of Jesus. And this was probably the theme that I focused on the most in that previous sermon. And what we saw, what I focused on, was a common misunderstanding that tends to float around many churches. And it's the misunderstanding that 
people refer, theologians refer to as verbal dictation. The idea that every single word in Scripture was directly placed there by God himself. And we look through Scripture, and we also look through Ellen White um, to see how this is a faulty model of inspiration. Um, here's a quote. I'm not going to go through the quotes again. If you need them, look at the previous sermon online. It's not the words of Scripture that are inspired. It's the authors that are inspired. And so we saw that what God does is he inspires the authors, and then they use their own words to express what God revealed. And so if God chose the words that go in the text, and here's where it matters, and here's what I'm going to focus on today, all right? Here's where we're going today, because this isn't just uh, an academic concept, right? This is very, very practical. It, it, it makes a big difference. If God chose every single word that goes in the text, then the words have no context. That's the real problem that emerges from the verbal dictation view. It leads to very inflexible and faulty interpretations of the Bible. And I'm going to explore that in a lot more detail today. And this is where it really gets practical. So what we saw is that the words are human words that then convey a message, right? The words are human words that point us to the word, which is Jesus. And when we understand the context that the words are written in, then the message comes to life. And I'm going to explore that. Like I said, that's the, that's the point of today. I want to explore that in much more detail today. Now, before I do that, I want to answer a few questions that I got, really good questions that I think this isn't clicking. Here we go. Um, actually, here's the model that we looked at last time. The Holy Spirit inspires the author's thoughts, and that then the author uses words that are using, borrowing Ellen White's language, imperfect, finite. These are words that are based on their culture, their education, their personality. That's their context. And when we understand their context, we can then decipher the message that they're trying to convey. Now, I want to look at two questions that I received because they were really good questions. And so if you ever have any questions about anything, please send them through because it actually helps me clarify my own thoughts as well. Um, so this is one of the questions that came through since the last sermon. If the words are not inspired, does this mean the words do not matter? And the easiest way to answer this question is to show you guys this quick little chart. So here's a chart with one view of inspiration, which is the skeptical view, right? This is the view that the Bible is just a human document. It's just full of errors, and you can't rely on it, and it doesn't have anything meaningful to say, right? That's one end of the extreme, right? This is the skeptical view. On the other side, we find the verbal dictation view, which is that every single text in Scripture is dictated and placed there directly from heaven, right? Um, and so in both of these views, in this view, the words don't matter at all, and in this view, the words, you're, you're obsessed with the words. And so the view that we saw that Ellen White pointed us toward is that it's both. The Scripture is a divine and human document. They're both working together. And so what this means then is that the words point us to something beyond themselves. They point us to the message that God wants us to have. And again, that's what I'm focusing on today. Oh, it looks like my, my pad here is dying. Hopefully it lasts through the sermon. Um, so the other question that I got was, can't talking about how the words are not inspired lead people to doubt Scripture's reliability? And actually, the opposite is true. The opposite is true. When we give people a foundation on the Bible that claims more for the Bible than the Bible claims for itself, when they find contradictions, they tend to lose their faith. So, for example, people will discover that there are grammatical errors in Scripture. And they'll think, well, God doesn't make mistakes, so how could there possibly be grammatical errors in Scriptures? Maybe this whole thing is fake. Um, or they'll find that 
they can't make sense of certain contradictions. You know, Matthew tells a story and John tells it and the details don't really match up. And they can't really make sense of that. And so they'll start to lose their faith in how the scripture works. Or they'll discover that each book contains the personality of its author, right? Um, and this doesn't match the idea that God dictated everything because each book bears the imprint of a different education, different message, um, not different message, but different personality. And in fact, I mentioned last time, if you look at the book of Revelation in the original Greek, there's a lot of mistakes because, uh, spelling mistakes, because John wasn't very good at Greek. He, it wasn't his first language. Um, and then, of course, you find that when people discover that Ellen White used editors and that she updated her writings, it doesn't match this idea that God dictates every word. And so, in, in reality, most of the strongest critics that have ever attacked the Adventist church are people who were once Adventists who were verbal dictationists, and then they found it didn't match <laughs> um, even Ellen White's experience, and so they left the church and started attacking it. So giving people a faulty model from the beginning will actually set them up for apostasy in the end. We have to give people a realistic model, an accurate model, that can stand the test of scrutiny, but also give you a balanced approach to Scripture. And that balanced approach is what enables you to discover life in the text. So I want you guys to come with your Bibles with me to John chapter 5, because now that I've gotten all that out of the way, I'm, I want to get practical, and I want to look at how this actually works. John chapter 5. Now, John chapter 5 is the text that we read from last time, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And so Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees, and we saw how the Pharisees had memorized all the scriptures, and they'd memorized all of Moses' writings, all these things. This is in that same conversation, verse 46. Jesus says this, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. I want to read that again. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Now, I've already expanded on the earlier text, so I'm just going to focus on verse 46 for today. Jesus says something really interesting here. And I want you guys to really hone in on this and don't go through it too fast because there's something wild taking place in this text. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, and we need to pause here because the Pharisees did believe Moses. They memorized everything Moses wrote by the time they were 12. They had entire books of the Bible committed to memory. They dedicated every moment of every day to pouring through the scriptures. This was their job. This was, this was what they did. And Jesus says, if, you believed Moses. And it's like, well, wait, time out. They do believe Moses. I mean, nobody believes Moses more than them. And yet Jesus says, or insinuates, that they don't really believe in Moses. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you think you believe him, you claim to believe him, you can even quote him ad nauseum. But you don't really believe him because if you did, 
you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Now pause there again. Where did Moses write about Jesus? Where in the five books of the Torah did Moses say Jesus is going to be born and he's the son of God? Nowhere. What Moses wrote about? Um, here we go. Moses wrote about, if this clicker will work, he wrote about creation. He wrote about the patriarchs. He wrote about the history of Israel. He wrote about the moral law. He wrote about the ceremonial law. He wrote about the hygiene laws. He wrote about the sanctuary and the services. And he wrote about social, sexual, and Levitical laws. That's what Moses wrote about. And it's like, well, where in all of that is Jesus? And this is it. Like, this is the linchpin, guys. This is the point that Jesus is getting at. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, and he's telling you and me today, that all of these themes that you find throughout Scripture are really ultimately not about themselves. They're about him. But the Pharisees didn't see it because they were so busy memorizing the words of Scripture that they missed the word of life. But had they really, really dug into what Moses was saying, they would have seen Jesus everywhere. They would have seen Jesus, as, as John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and everything that was made was made by him. Who was creating in creation? It was Jesus. They would have seen this the, the analogies between the tree of life and the cross, right? There's this tree in Eden, and you eat the fruit, and it gives death. There's this tree, right? The cross is referred to as a tree in the New Testament, that you eat the fruit of this tree, of the cross, and it gives you life, right? There's this, there's this um, analogy that's there, this the idea of crushing the serpent's head, right? There's this promise that this descendant's going to come, and he's going to crush the serpent's head. And it's interesting that Jesus' cross is placed on Golgotha, with lit which literally means the place of the skull, almost as if symbolizing a crushing taking place. Abraham's seed, right? The promise to Abraham's seed that all nations would be blessed. That's Jesus. Moses, right? When Moses, when, when, when the Israelites are apostatizing and God says, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses says, no, God, don't do it. Take me instead. This is a type of Christ. It's there. Um, Joshua, which is the word Joshua and Jesus, they come from the same etymological root. Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. This is what Jesus does. I love this um, comment that Doug Batchelor made one time many years ago. I never forgot it. Um, between Moses and Joshua that Moses, who represents the law in Scripture, can get you close to the promised land, but it's the Savior, Joshua, who represents Jesus that gets you in, right? The law can't get you in. Maybe it can get you to the borders, but it can't get you in. Um, so there's, there's these strong themes. Oh, the sanctuary, the lamb, the atonement, it all points to Jesus. All of it was about Jesus. And yet, the Pharisees were going to the Old Testament they were obsessing over words, obsessing over the rules, and applying them in ridiculous and exaggerated ways. And they completely missed the point. Now, there's an interesting statement in Desire of Ages, page 204, that says this, the Jews had so perverted the law. Now, you have to pause and think. Pause a lot, guys, when you're reading. <laughs> when it comes to Scripture, I spend more time pausing than I do anything else. And it's interesting because I have a lot of people who will say to me, oh, Marcus, we just love your sermons. They're so good. I don't know how you see that in the text. I don't do anything magical, guys. I, I don't have a superpower. You just pause and you read and you think and you let it sort of sink in 
And as you pause, you think, okay, the Jews had so perverted the law. Well, wait a minute. They weren't perverting the law. They were defending it, weren't they? Well, not according to Ellen White. They had perverted the law that they made it a yoke of bondage. Their meaningless requirements had become a byword among other nations, especially was the Sabbath hedged in by all manner of senseless restrictions. It was not to them a delight, the holy of the Lord and honorable. The scribes and Pharisees had made its observance an intolerable burden. And in the end, they killed the Lord of the Sabbath and then rushed home so they could keep the Sabbath. It's interesting because there's a tendency that exists to this day, the, the Pharisee within, right, where we do the same thing. And oftentimes it begins with a misunderstanding of how Scripture functions, how Scripture works. And if you misunderstand how scripture functions and how it works, you can think you're being faithful to the text when really you're damaging what God is trying to do in the world. So what I want to do today is I want to take a look at the five simple steps that will enable you to discover Jesus and avoid <laughs> senseless interpretations of scripture. Before I do that, just because I want to make this W proof, I want to make sure that we fully sort of understand or capture what it is we're dealing with here. So I want to give you guys three examples of what this looks like when people misinterpret Scripture, right? Just three simple examples of what this looks like. And then we can look at those five simple steps. So example number one, Luke 10, 19. I alluded to this in the first sermon. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, there's a whole church in America. I don't think they exist in Australia, but it's this whole church in America. When they worship, they worship with snakes. I don't know if you've seen them. Anyone, have you ever seen them on TV or something? You know, They dance around with snakes, and the snakes are not defanged. They are venomous. And the pastor comes out with snakes, and he's running around, and, and, and if you have faith, you will grab the snake and worship with, with the snake flaying around in your hands, right? Now, what they've done, now th this is a church that's very rooted in verbal dictation, right? What they've done is they've taken the text, they've ripped it out of its context because if the words came straight from heaven, there is no context, right? They've ripped it out of its context and they apply it really inflexibly. And so if you say to them, hey, you're misinterpreting the verse by ignoring its context and its main point, their response is, you're rebelliously trying to explain away the plain reading of the Word of God. Because it says it, and you just have to obey it. And that's the point I'm getting at, right? That type of language, that type of um, approach, it sounds really pious. It sounds like if you really value the Word of God, you will do this. But it's not. It's a faulty interpretation of Scripture. Um, Deuteronomy 22.11 um, there's a gazillion of these. I'm just giving you three examples just to keep it simple. Do not wear clothes of linen and wool and linen woven together. And I've actually encountered people who will say that anyone who wears mixed fabric is sinning. Right, so all of you, tough. You guys are all messed up. Um, and it's, it's interesting because the text does say that. I mean, it says it, right? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? And again, this is an example of if the words came straight from heaven, there's no context. You just read it and apply it, and that's the end of the story. But if the words 
If God was inspiring the author to communicate something and then the author was using his words and his context and his setting to communicate what God was trying to convey, then there is a context to that. And when you understand the context, then you can apply it to today and see what its meaning is. And so once again, if you tell someone like this, hey, you're misinterpreting, you're ignoring the context, they will say you're trying to explain away the plain reading, right? I'm going to look at one more example. This one is going to come really close to home for us as Adventists. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach her to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Um, I made quite a few friends. <laughs> I'm the kind of person who loves to make friends with people who, who disagree with me. So I made lots of friends who are, not, uh, who are former Adventists or not Adventists. Um, particularly when I was in university and I was in conversation with a lot of them. And this was their go-to verse for rejecting Ellen White's prophetic ministry. Go-to verse. She can't possibly be a prophet because, look, it says it. And if you try and say, yeah, but the context, no, 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 it says it. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> and so this is the point I'm getting at because... It sounds really pious when we do things like this. And, and, and like, a, you know, again, you know, you're rebelliously trying to explain away the plain reading of the Word of God. And it, it sounds really pious when you act this way, but it's not a faithful reading of the text. You've run into so many problems, and I could talk here all morning about that, but that's not really the point. I want to get practical now. Um, in order to faithfully apply Scripture to your life today, you have to understand that the words that Scripture is written in did not directly come from heaven. God inspired the author to communicate a message, and he used his best words available to him at the time, and that has a context to it. Now, are there times in Scripture where God dictated what's written? Yes. For example, he wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. I mean, you know, come on. You know, there's a particular passage in Isaiah and Jeremiah where God says, I want you to write word for word everything I'm going to tell you. Right? So there are instances, but it's not the way the whole of Scripture functions. Um, so these are examples of verbal dictation in action. Context is ignored. Inflexible applications are explored or enforced. A more responsible way of reading scripture is to recognize that the words are human and therefore they have a context. And deciphering the context is the key to a balanced application. So let's take a look at that right now. I'll give you five simple steps, guys. These are so easy. You don't need a theology degree to do this, right? This is super easy. Here we go. Exploring the context. You have a verse. You have a passage that you're reading. This is how you do it. Step number one. Who wrote the text? That doesn't sound too hard, does it? It's pretty simple. Who wrote the text? Ah, Jeremiah wrote it. Okay, yeah. And the story, right? Who wrote the text? Now, once you've identified who wrote the text, then the very next question is, when did he write the text? Or when was the text written? Um, now, it's not always possible. There's some books of the Bible where we kind of don't know who wrote them, but... For the most part, you can definitely answer question two, when was the text written? And that's really helpful because it helps you identify where in the history of Scripture the text was written and, and, and how it applies is derived from that. Now, why did he write the text? Right? There's another really important question. Why did he write the text? And finally, well, actually, these are sub-questions. Sub what was he addressing? And here's where you get into culture literature, and narrative. Now, before any of you get confused and horribly lost with those three big words, let me just pause. I'm not going to talk about this too much today. This is what part three is going to be about, the narrative context, right? Reading scripture as a story, because that's essentially what it is. But I'm not going to talk about that too much today. Culture is just what was, what was going on in this person's immediate time in their context. 
and literary is read the verse above and below <laughs> the literature, right? Or read the chapter before, read the chapter after. It gives you the literary kind of what was happening in the literature. That's all it means. Um, for culture, you can just, there's commentaries and Bibles that you can get that give you those, those insights. Um, and then finally, what did it mean to his readers? All right. So who wrote the text? When did he write the text? Why did he write the text? And what did it mean to his readers? Because if you can identify the answer to those four questions, then it's a lot easier to identify how does it apply today. What a lot of people do is they read the text and then they jump straight to application without understanding the context. And that's where we tend to get into problems. But once we understand the answer to those four questions, and guys, that is literally it. That's how you explore context. That's literally, it's so simple. You don't need a degree to do this. This is really basic stuff. That's how you explore the context. And the only reason why most people never do that in their study of scripture is because of the assumption that everywhere just came straight from heaven and there is no context. And so I just read it and apply it. But when we recognize that this inspiration doesn't work that way, then we can deal more faithfully with scripture. And we have to remember as we're dealing with this and as we're working with these things that scripture has been used to defend slavery and it's been used to defend segregation and it's been used to defend abuse and it's been used to justify colonialism and injustice and misogyny. And, and today the Bible can be used to justify just about anything you want to justify with it. Um, I had a professor that was doing, when I was at Southern, that was doing a research project on marriage and ethics uh, of marriage in scripture and he was in conversation with a whole group of people who had started a Christian ministry for, um, what do they call them? You know those spouses, the couples that meet and they swap spouses? What are they called, swingers? Is that what it's called? So they had a Christian swingers ministry. And they used the Bible to defend the Christian swingers. So weird. They were promoting the idea that this is okay, right? And so, again, you can make the Bible say anything you want if you ignore the context, right? That's the danger here. So, I think I have a little example here. Yeah, let me give you guys a quick example of how this works. Here's a verse that we all love. Jeremiah 29, 11. Who doesn't love this verse? This is the best. Such a good verse. And so what, what I've seen over the years, especially when I was in university, you know, you got a big exam coming up, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pass the exam. I'm so stressed. And then you're a well-meaning friend, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? And, and then you feel better, like, oh, this is, this is great. Now, I'm not saying there's anything evil with that, but when you actually explore the context of this verse, you find it's way more powerful than you have a big tough exam coming up and here's a nice promise to make you feel good, right? So let's, let, me, let me apply these steps very quickly here because again, we use this text for all kinds of things, but what does it actually mean? Let me apply the steps really quickly and then we'll move on. So, Jeremiah 29, 11. Who wrote the text? Jeremiah. Ha, ah, how did you guess? <laughs> Jeremiah wrote the text. When did he write the text? Now here's where it gets into, here's where you have to spend a little bit more time. And part of the challenge here is that we live in a consumer-driven McDonald's fast food society. We want to open the Bible and find stuff like that. It doesn't work that way. The Bible invites you to participate, to wrestle, to question, to think, to ponder, right? Salah in the Psalms, that what it, that's what it means to meditate on what you're, what you're reading. 
and it takes time. And so when we actually start to discover, explore when did he write the text, now this takes a little bit more time because now you've got to go and, and look at you know, what was actually happening. And to make a long story short, because I'm just uh, giving this one to you guys as a freebie for the sermon, Jeremiah wrote the text when Israel, or Judah at the time, had reached the point of apostasy that was so bad that God spoke out against them and said, I am going to wipe you as a man wipes a dish. He said to the people of Israel, you have become more wicked than the Canaanites who were there when I brought you here. You've become worse than them. And when we read the stories in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, which were written consecutively with this, we find that the streets of Jerusalem were running with blood of the innocent. The kings of the time were only concerned with their elite class. They weren't given justice to the widows. They weren't given justice to the poor. They weren't given justice to the orphans. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. They were murdering the innocents. In fact, there's a, there's a Jewish um, tradition that says that uh, the prophet Isaiah was actually sawn in half by Manasseh because he was speaking out against the king Manasseh, and so he ordered him to be cut in half. That's how, his, that, that's how Isaiah died. And so this is Israel, right? This is the context. Israel had become so bad that God said, Israel, I am through. My judgment is coming. Nothing's going to stop it. I'm sending the Babylonians. They're going to destroy your city. They're going to flatten your gates. They're going to burn down your houses. And they're going to take you captive to Babylon. And you're going to be exiled there. Because I've had it with your injustice and your hypocrisy and your wickedness. I've, I'm done. And so God sends the Babylonians. And as the Babylonians are coming, Jeremiah is warning the people of Judah, the Babylonians are coming. And then these false prophets come out of nowhere. And they start saying, oh, don't worry, Judah. The Lord has revealed to me that everything is going to be fine. And so then God judges those false prophets. And he comes back to Jeremiah. And he says, no, not, everything's not going to be fine. There's no turning me back. My anger is so high, I am pouring out my wrath on Judah. And so the Babylonians come. And they attack the city of Jerusalem, and they flatten it. And every Judean, every Israelite that's there is taken captive and taken all the way to Babylon as exiles. They're abandoned. They're forsaken. Their own God has said, I've had it with you. It's like there's nothing left for them. They're taken captive into, into, into Babylon. And the Judeans are thinking at this time, because only a few Maybe one or two centuries before, I could be wrong on the time there, but some years before, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had been wiped out by the Assyrians, and no one knows what happened to them to this day. And so they're thinking, this is it. Now the same's going to happen to us. And so they're brought into Babylon as exiles. And in Jeremiah 29, 10, God is, he, through the prophet Jeremiah, he sends a letter to the people of Israel, and he tells the people of Israel, you're going to be in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, 10, for 70 years. You're exiled to Babylon for 70 years. And when the 70 years are over, I'm going to bring you back. Verse 11, because I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. What a good God. You see, when you look at the context of the verse, you discover this isn't about, I have a tough exam coming up. This is a verse 
for people who have reached the end of their rope and they're at the lowest of their low and their marriage is falling apart and their addictions are tearing them to pieces and they've got nothing left and nowhere left to turn. When you read Jeremiah 29, 11, God is speaking to a people who had nowhere left to turn, a people who had no hope left. And he says to them, I know the plans I have for you. I'm not through with you because even when you're not faithful, I'm still faithful. Now, you have that devotional in the morning, you're going to be on your toes all day, man. Context. Context. Now, as you look at this verse, why did he write the test? What did it mean to its readers? Now that you've answered all these questions, now you can say, how does it apply today? And you derive from the text life and power and meaning to carry you through the day. And you don't need a pastor to do that for you. You can open this book and you can have Jesus for yourself. Words of scripture are pointing us to a larger word, the message of scripture. Now, in part three of this sermon series, I'm going to focus on how we bring the overarching story of Scripture into this experience because that actually takes you deeper. It's amazing. It takes you deeper. It broadens. Even Jeremiah 29-11, there's way more when you look at it through the overarching narrative of Scripture. But that's for part three because I don't want to overwhelm the brain. What I want to do for now is I want to turn to Ellen White. Um... And I want to ask, what did Ellen White have to say about the use of context in understanding inspired writing? Because the truth is, while we have a tendency, especially under this view of verbal dictation, to look at scripture, rip it out of its context, and apply it in really bizarre ways, the truth is, the, the biggest victim of this faulty approach to application and Adventism isn't really the Bible, it's Ellen White. We rip so much of what she has to say out of its context, and then we apply it in ways that she never intended for it to be applied. And this doesn't just happen now. It happened when she was alive. Um, and it frustrated her so much. So I'll, I'll share with you guys some of the things she wrote about it. This is from Third Selected Messages. We see those who will select from the testimonies the strong, strongest expressions and without bringing in or making any account of the circumstances under which the cautions and warnings are given. Context. That's what she's talking about there. Ignoring the context, without bringing in the context, they make them a force in every case. In other words, she's saying, look, there's things that I've written that are not of force in every case. And when you ignore the context and you use these statements to smash people over the head with it, this is what she says. They produce unhealthy impressions upon the minds of the people. So this was happening in her day. It was happening while she was alive. Here's another statement, also from Third Selected Messages. It's, it's actually, I think these are just one, one below the other. They will go at the work, making a raid upon the people, picking out some things in the testimonies to drive them upon everyone and disgust rather than win souls. They make divisions where they might and should make peace. Now, I probably don't have to ask, but I'm sure everyone here has experienced this at some point particularly those of you who've been in the Adventist church for some time, you've experienced this at some point. Let not individuals gather up the very strongest statements 
given for individuals and families. Like, there's context again, right? There's context. And drive these things because they want to use the whip and have something to drive. This was happening in her day a lot. Now, here's one where we really get to see a side of Ellen White that we don't often see, where she really just opens her heart. It's very vulnerable. This is what she says. I am afraid to speak even to my friends, for afterwards I hear, Sister White said this, or Sister White said that. My words are so rested, rested, that means ripped, right, to rip out, take out of its context. They're so rested and misinterpreted that I am coming to the conclusion that the Lord desires me to keep out of large assemblies and refuse private interviews. What I say is reported in such a perverted light that it is new and strange to me. It is mixed with words spoken by men to sustain their own theories. You can really sense the frustration and, and the agony in, in her voice as she writes this because the absolute center of Ellen White's entire ministry was to call people back to Scripture and to Jesus. And yet people were taking her words, ripping them out of their context, making all kinds of things out of them that she never intended to be made out of them. And she got to the point where she didn't even want to talk anymore. That's pretty, that's pretty telling. So, I want to take a look at a few examples of how this context thing works with Ellen White as well. Because I think we need to understand both. It works the same as it does with scripture. Context, right? Recognizing context. Now, Ellen White did say that schools should teach girls to harness and drive a horse. Um... So they would be better fitted to meet the emergencies of life. She also said in 1894, to both young and old, to avoid the bewitching influence of the bicycle craze. No bicycles. Um, and she counseled an administrator in 1902 not to buy an automobile to transport patients from the railroad station to the sanitarium because it was a needless expense and would prove to be a temptation to others to do the same thing. So, of course, um, I'm not sure that we would be justified in starting a Sunday class on how to harness a horse here at Vic Park and telling all our members to throw away their bikes and cars. And we recognize that, right? Anyone with a smidgen of intelligence and common sense can see, okay, like that's obvious, you know? Obviously, what Ellen White is talking about in those statements is a principle that can be applied differently across time. She's saying, don't waste money on things you don't need. She's saying, learn the skills of independence so that you can meet the challenges of life. And she's saying, don't, chase after fashion just because everybody else is doing it. There's obvious principles that can be applied differently across time. But a verbal dictation view looks at these statements without any context and would say, hey, this is what it says and so you've got to do it. The challenge is those statements, our common sense won't let us do that with them. But we do it with others. That's the problem, right? Those statements are so obvious that oftentimes our common sense is like, well, clearly but then we do it with others. So I want to show you guys two examples of how this played out while she was alive as well and how she responded to it because it's really helpful in understanding um, how she interpreted even her own writings. So in, in Testimonies Volume 3, Ellen White had this very strong statement that parents should be the only teachers of their children until they've reached the age of 8 or 10 years. Um, and she stood by that her whole life, by the way, and, and, and I think it's a, it's a brilliant counsel as well. But what happened was that there was a school that was, had opened up at a, at a church, and the school was divided. And they were divided because half of the board wanted the school to be opened up for kids who were younger than 8 or 10, 
And the other half said, no, Ellen White said not to do that. And so there was this, they, were, they, were in, they, were in, they were in stalemate. They weren't getting anywhere. And so those who were saying, hey, we should open it up to school for the kids who are younger, were appealing to common sense. They were saying, we get the testimony, we get, we get the advice, we, we get the counsel, um, but the truth is we can't just leave kids roaming around the streets. They, they need to be provided for. And then the other, were, the other part of the group was saying, no, the counsel is the counsel and that's the end of it. So there was this tension, this, this, this gridlock between them. And Ellen White was still alive, so they brought her in to mediate the conversation. And it's interesting when you read it because she affirms her counsel. She never backs away from it because it is good counsel. But she's really frustrated with the people who were taking a really rigid view on what she had to say. Right? And so, for example, I think it's here. Yes, she says this. My mind has been greatly stirred in regard to the idea why Sister White has said so-and-so and Sister White has said so-and-so, and therefore we're going right up to it. God wants us all to have common sense, and he wants us to reason from common sense. Circumstances alter conditions. Circumstances change the relation of things. And here you can see this balanced thinking in Ellen White. She's not denying the counsel that she gave, but she's affirming that when she gave the counsel, the context, the circumstances were different than what the school was experiencing. And she says to them, guys, use your common sense. And I want to affirm that here this morning, all right? Because sometimes we're so afraid of allowing our biases to color what God is saying that we go too far. Use common sense, guys. You don't need a PhD in theology to know nonsense when you hear it. If it doesn't sound right, study it some more, right? Common sense is not the end-all, be-all. But if something sounds off, dig. Don't just... Don't just accept it just because someone with a PhD said it, right? So she says, yes, look, God wants us to reason from common sense. Circumstances alter conditions. Circumstances change the relation of things. And as they discussed, this was what she said. Whoops, the, the, the slides are a bit backwards, so sorry. Well, if parents have not got it in them, you might just as well stop where you are. Therefore, we've got to make provision. And she goes on. But the point she's making in this conversation with this board is, look, if parents are able, they should be the only parents of their kids until they're 8 or 10. But if they're not up to it, you can't just leave a bunch of kids running around the streets just because I wrote something in, in Testimonies Volume 3. Use your common sense, all right? If they're not up to it, stop where you are. Make provision. Common sense. This is an example in her own life of how she interpreted her own writings. She, wasn't, she didn't even look at her own writings in an inflexible way. She looked at context, she looked at circumstances, she looked at conditions, and she encouraged people, look at the context. Use your common sense. Here's one more example. This one's a bit stronger. Um, it's the last one, and we're, we're getting ready to close. But I hope that these insights are, will be helpful to you as you study the Bible and study Ellen White to not get so caught up and bogged down in words that you miss the message and that you miss what God's actually trying to convey. Case study number two. In 1894, a group of missionaries arrived at the Salusi School in modern-day Zimbabwe. In 1898, a major outbreak of malaria swept the area. The missionaries refused to take the drug quinine because Ellen White had said to avoid harmful drugs, so they applied her counsel inflexibly. One of the missionaries insisted it was better to use quinine than remain vulnerable to the full force of the disease. He was the one who was considered the unfaithful one, by the way. The end of the story, of the original seven missionaries who arrived, only three survived. The three who took the quinine. 
Now, a similar scenario took place sometime later where a South Pacific missionary lost his eldest son to malaria because he refused to give him quinine based on, again, an inflexible approach to Ellen White's counsels. And he actually met Ellen White. Willie White writes about this because he was there. He met Ellen White and he said to her, would I have sinned to give the boy quinine when I knew of no other way to check malaria when the prospect was that he would die without it? Her response was simple. No, we're expected to do the best we can. And so what we see here once again is Ellen White looking at her very own writings and saying, what were you thinking? Look at the condition, look at the circumstance, look at what's happening around you. Of course, she never backed away from her advice that we should avoid the use of harmful drugs and we should limit that. I fully affirm that. But she's looking at the context and the condition and saying, you wouldn't have sinned to have done the best that you could have done for your kid at that time. And so this is where it matters the most, guys. And this is why I'm presenting on this. Because a faulty model of inspiration might lead you to make some silly applications of scripture, but it can also lead you to make some life-altering, life-damaging applications of scripture. And it can do the same with Ellen White. It's not just a matter, I remember a long time ago, I, was, I, was, uh, uh, I encountered this verse in, in, in Joshua, where Joshua's writing, right, about the, um, uh, when the Israelites went into Canaan and they crossed the River Jordan. And it says, I think it's chapter 4, verse 19, I can't remember. It says, and they set up 12 stones and the stones are there to this day. And I remember thinking, whoa, the text says the stones are there to this day. So we could just go over there and look at them. And then I researched it, you know, I like, what do the archaeologists, where are the stones? It's like, oh, they're not there. I'm like, huh. Well, the stones were there to this day 4,000 years ago when Joshua wrote it, <laughs> right? So now that's, that's silly. That's a silly example of denying context. But then there's serious examples of denying context. And if we don't take context seriously, we can do real harm to ourselves and to the people around us. So here's the scenario. You have a text, and many of us jump from the text straight to application. But what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that between the text and the application, there is a context. There is an author, there is a setting, there is a purpose, and there is an audience. And when you figure that out, you can then mine from the text meaning that is actually powerful and life-changing for you. Words leading to the word, which is Jesus. So I just want to close with what Jesus said here in John chapter 5. And like I said, next sermon, I'm going to take a look at the narrative perspective and how we can bring the theme of Scripture into interpreting Scripture as well, and it expands and amplifies the message even more. Jesus, again, speaking to the Pharisees, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. See, the Pharisees missed the main point of everything Moses wrote because they were obsessed with the words at the expense of the word. They failed to consider the redemptive context of Scripture. And as a result, in their attempts to defend the principles of God, they became his greatest enemies. And so my encouragement to you today in how to study the Bible, part two, is recognize how inspiration works. Allow the words of humans who were inspired by God to lead you to the word, which is Jesus. Exploring the context of each passage 
we can begin to see Jesus and the redemptive heart of God everywhere. And when you do that, all of a sudden, as you read the Bible, your soul is full. And you don't need a preacher to fill you because you have been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. There's life in here, Lord. There's stories and poems and prophecies and letters and biographies that point us to you. And they offer us healing and hope. It's like that song that we were singing earlier today, Lord. They're beautiful words, wonderful words of life. And when we consume these words, Lord, it's, it does something to us. It transforms us. It, it leads us into your throne of grace. But sometimes when we've been led to approach the Bible from erroneous or faulty perspectives, it damages our ability to derive from the text the real message that you had in mind. The Pharisees fell for this, and even to this day, we fall for it, Lord. Because if there's one thing Satan wants to do is keep us away from your word, and if he can't keep us away from your word, he'll keep us away from discovering the message of your word. Now, Lord, we've learned some practical steps today on how to approach your word in a way that is balanced and healthy and sensible and ultimately a way that leads us to your message, which is always centered in Jesus. And my prayer is for each and every one of us as we open our Bibles this week and we begin to read and we begin to explore, that in that reading, in that exploration, we would encounter what the Pharisees always missed. We would encounter Jesus, the one who gives life, the one who Moses wrote about, the one who Isaiah wrote about, the one who Daniel wrote about, and, and Jeremiah and, and, and Ezra, Lord. The one who permeates the New Testament and the Old. As we open this book, we would encounter him at every step. And that when we close this book, after our morning or evening devotions, we would leave our place of devotion with our hearts filled because we have been with Jesus. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray this prayer. Amen.